Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. All right, so Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. We are moving very slowly through the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, This is the last good church, if you will, of the seven churches. There are only two churches that um, uh, were good churches from Christ's designation. Uh, And then the other five all were not so. And uh, so this is the letter. It's filled with wonderful, wonderful promises. And we're just going to want to soak in these. I I hope that as we've studied these, particularly the overcomer passages and things along those lines, that you are seeing that this is a wonderful place to turn in times of encouragement, in times of focus, um, in times when you just need uh, to be reminded of the promises of God. Last week, as we began our time looking at the church, uh, at the uh, letter to the church in Philadelphia, um, we saw that Jesus doesn't begin by um, uh, describing himself as the one having eyes of flames of fire. Uh, There's not a judgment emphasis on this. He begins by telling them who he is. And he uses a messianic title that not all of our translations pick up, but it's clearly there. Um, even as we studied our, our, in our session last week, it says, thus says the Holy One. The Holy One is a title, a messianic title related to the second coming of Christ, referring to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It is not just a description that Jesus is holy. And uh, we traced that out. You're welcome to listen to that message online if you uh, missed it. But even the demons, if you remember in Luke chapter 4, whenever they refer to Jesus, they said, you know, we know who you are, the Holy One. They didn't say we know what you are, characterized by holy. Uh, And we, we looked at that last week. Not only is he the Holy One, but he's also the true one. He's the true one. Again, that's another title. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And everything he says is truth. And um, there, though there are many false uh, antichrists, and there are many false saviors of the world and false things, he is the true one. And so Jesus approaches this church not with a vision of judgment, eyes of fire, feet of bronze, Not with uh, that type of relation at all. Uh, He comes to them and just reminds them that the one that's writing to them is the Holy One, is the True One. And now look at this. And here's where we're going to spend our time today. He is, notice uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. He's the one who has the key of David. The one who has the key of David. Now... If we just skip over that and go into open and closed doors and go into the rest of it, we will really miss the significance. There are a lot of people who will say, you know, well, uh, how are you doing? I'm great. God has opened the door for me to have a new job. 
Or something happened and they'll say, well, God closed that door and where God closes one door, He'll open another. And oftentimes that reference is found right here. Theologically, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Okay? I don't think there's anything wrong with with believing in the sovereignty of God and that He opens doors and He closes doors. And, you know, I think sometimes we carry those little illustrations too far. You know, where God closes a door, He opens a window. And, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever. But I do believe in the sovereignty of God in every detail. And so, beloved, right, if God opens the door for us to meet there or He closes the door here, God is sovereign over that. But if you just simply apply that to this passage of Scripture, you miss the whole connection. You don't even need to understand what the key of David is or why that even matters. And so it's interesting to me, and and I think it's worthwhile for us to take the time and to be reminded of God's covenant with David, what's called the Davidic covenant, and to have that in mind. Because as we come back to what Jesus says, who has the key of David, it will make even more sense, more context will give more clarity uh, to that which he he is saying. So what I want to do today is, is I want us to search the scriptures and I want us to be reminded of the covenant that, that we are most familiar with, uh, oftentimes, but we know the least about. In other words, what we tend to say is, is Jesus has to be the son of David and, and the one who sits on the throne has to be, uh, of David's lineage. But what does that mean and why does that matter? And specifically, what we want to know is, is why does it matter to us here at Doxa Church today? I'm not Jewish. I have no connection with David. Why does that even matter? And, and I hope that as we look at that today, and as we come back then and, and apply it into not only the rest of this letter, but even as we're going to see today, it's, it's several places in, in the book of Revelation that it will help us to uh, have our eyes wide open to the truths of God's Word. So if it's the key of David, the key, the one who has the key of David, then I want us to take a look at why did Jesus refer Himself as... Why didn't He just say, and I hold the key? I mean, would it not be enough for Christ to say, I hold the key? In fact, we would probably say that that would carry more weight than is the one who has the key of David. What is this what is this about? And in there. I always find it interesting and um, think about receiving this letter. You receive this letter and you read it, they understood it. They didn't need anybody to explain any of the things to them. They they lived in that culture. They lived in that context. They knew exactly what it meant. When Jesus was walking through and people looked at Him and said, You know, have mercy on me, Son of David. 
They didn't have to explain why they were calling Jesus son of David. Because in that culture, in that context, they all knew exactly what it was and knew exactly what it meant and knew that it had to tie to the Davidic covenant and those things. We who are Gentiles, who are removed from the biblical world, who are living all of these years later, we need to have some understanding and some context to be able to come back and go, Oh, that's what that means. Rather than saying, I have no clue and going on to the next one. Alright? So what is it, what is this? Where do we begin in our study of this context? For that, and, and, and we have to go from place to place. We have to go from place to place. Uh, you say, why do we have to go from place to place? Because God scattered His truth throughout His Word. And so we're going to begin in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to make our way to Psalm 89. 2 Samuel chapter 7, in my Bible, it's entitled, The Lord's Covenant with David. The Lord's Covenant with David. And we may have to do this in uh, in a couple of sections, but, but that's okay. We'll do what we can today, and then we'll come back uh, to this next week uh, as well. We're just lingering in God's Word, so it's, uh, it's all good. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's in the Old Testament. Huh? Second Samuel's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's Samuel's Kings and Chronicles. So if you turn uh, back here, keep going, keep going right there. There's Second Samuel. Come back this way. First Samuel, First Samuel. Second Samuel chapter seven. Second, it's okay. Second Samuel, Samuel chapter seven. We, uh, verse 1, when the king had settled into his palace, and the king being David, uh, remember there, there were only, David's the second king, Saul was the first, Saul was an, a wicked king, turned out to be, David was a man after God's own heart, yet he did wicked things as well. Uh, but he still, God said, not David, David wasn't declaring he's a man after God's own heart. God declared that David, even in uh, his, though he's not perfect like the rest of us, is a man after God's own heart. So when the king, and that be David, had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, so it was a good time. It was peaceful. No wars, things like that. The king settled into his palace. And as he began to settle in his palace and he began to think, God had given him rest on every side from his enemies. The king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living here in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So in other words, David's living in this palace, this nice house. And he recognizes that God is the one who brought all this thing. And where is God? In terms of His manifest presence on earth, the ark of God that represented God's presence was in a tent. Was in a tent. And And he said, So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? 
From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with the tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all of your enemies before you. And I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Look at the next verse. The Lord declares to you. Now, look at this. David says, I'm going to build the Lord a house. And the Lord comes back and says, I didn't ask for a house. Now, let's let that sink in for just a minute. David's intentions were good. David saw how he lived and he saw what was taking place with with where God lived. And David says, I can't imagine living in a cedar house. And here's my Lord uh, in this. But you know, the Lord is less concerned about the packaging in which His presence was manifested. Now, does the Lord care? Absolutely He does. If we were to go back and look at the tabernacle, that was no shabby tent where the Lord came down. The Lord commanded the tabernacle to be built. The Lord will command the the temple to be built. And He'll do it in His way, in His timing, in His glory. We'll dwell that temple. But, But let's not be presumptuous to build that which the Lord has not said we should build. One of the frustrations when it comes to church planting is this. Oh, if we only had a place. Oh, the Lord could move greater in another place. You know what? Right? We are where we are because this is where the Lord said we should be. And if the Lord says we should be anywhere else, then then He'll put us there. Right? And if y'all get right with the Lord and pray, He may give you cushion chairs to sit on. But as long as you are rebelling against God, metal chairs it is. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you take matters in your own hand and you bring cushions because you're going to show the Lord, well, somebody will steal half of them. I'm teasing, of course. But notice what the Lord says here. Look at, look at what He says. He says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord Himself will make a house for you. Now, He's not talking about building David a nicer house than what He has. That's not what He's talking about. 
He says, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, and now look at this, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom how long? Forever. God wasn't promising to build David this big house because he's a faithful man after God's own heart. This has nothing to do with prosperity theology. God hates prosperity theology and His wrath will rest on those who preach it. It is absolutely contrary to the biblical gospel and yet it is absolutely most popular gospel in our land today. And it is not a true gospel. It is a false gospel. What was God promising here? It wasn't even going to happen in David's time. He says, you're going to build, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a lineage. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to make your name great among all the peoples of the earth. Yes, there's going to be a temple. You're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. You're not going to build it. And yes, my, my glory will dwell there. But that's not even what he's referring to here. He's referring to building David a house, a lineage, a dynasty. And by the way, and it will last forever. Verse 12, when your time comes, you rest who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son when he does any when he does wrong. I will discipline him with the rod of men. And blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, verse 16, your house and kingdom will endure before me. How long, church? Forever. And your throne will be established. How long? Forever. And Nathan, the prophet, reported all these words And this entire vision to David. Look at David's response. The king David went in and he sat in the Lord's presence. Oh, with such humility. David's response to the promise of God, it just just overwhelmed him. You know what David said? David said the exact same thing that you and I should say if we stop to look at all the promises of God that have been given to us. Who am I, Lord God? Who am I? I'm not worthy of this. I'm not deserving of this. I was a little shepherd boy minding my own business and God found him and reached him and elevated him and made him king over all of Israel. And now God is establishing his throne in the house of David forever. All David could say is, who am, who am I, Lord? Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What have, what have you done so far? In other words, David saying, Lord, if you never have, if you, what you've done for me is enough. 
What you've done for me so far is enough. If you never do another thing for me, God, you alone are worthy of my worship. You alone are worthy of my praise and adoration. God, if you never do another thing for me, enough is enough for what you've already done. Is that your mindset and mentality as well? I mean, let's look at all the things that God has done for you. Uh, you were lost and dying in the domain of darkness under the wrath of God. Minding your own business, living your own way, living contrary to the gospel. That's all of us. Not, I mean, that's all of us. And God comes in His way. He finds you. He rescues you. He redeems you. He removes you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His Beloved. He, he places the Holy Spirit of God inside you. He forgives you of all of your iniquities. He seals you with the Holy Spirit of God. He gives you promises both for now, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and in the future I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. If He has done that where you will be with Him in heaven, with Him for all of eternity, is that not enough? then why is it that so many get so miffed with God when He doesn't answer according to the way that they think that He should? Beloved, as you grow in your relationship with Christ, it becomes less about the hands of God, more about seeking the face of God and knowing the heart of God. But when you're a babe, it's all about the hands. Give me this. Do this. Deliver me. Move me. Everything is about do, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me. And just like we do with our children when they are young and they're toddlers, we do so gladly and joyfully. And God, He, He does not, He does not remiss ever doing anything for us. But when you get a little bit older and you appreciate Him and you grow to be like Him and you study His Word and you recognize all that He's done for you, there is an appreciation for your Heavenly Father unlike any appreciation you've ever had for your earthly father or any other earthly individual who has ever done anything for you. It overwhelms you. Who am I? And what have you done? Verse 19, what have you done so far? Was was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you've also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. In the distant future, you said, God, this is not just about me in the here and now. What have you done? You've talked about, listen, not your king. How did David see himself? You've talked about your servant. Though he was elevated to the king of Israel, he still saw himself as nothing but a servant. Of God. You've spoken about your servant's house in the distant future, and this is a revelation. Listen, he understood. This is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God, because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. Go down to verse verse 24. 
Verse 24, you establish your people Israel to your own people forever and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant in his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever when it said, The Lord of the host is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you since you, Lord of armies, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now please bless your servant's house that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. God promises David, he says, I'm going to build, I'm a, you're a king, I'm going to build you a lineage, I'm going to build you a dynasty, I'm, it's going to be basically my kingdom, but the one who sits on the throne will be of the house of David, and that throne will be established forever. What a wonderful promise of God. Let's go to Psalm 89 and, and we'll, we'll stop there today. I have several other, but we'll, we'll pick up tomorrow. But let's look at Psalm 89. And Psalm 89 is, is, is a wonderful psalm. It's also about the Davidic promises of God. In Psalm 89, verse 1. Psalm 89 is a psalm that talks, uh, speaks greatly about the um, uh, about the Davidic covenant. Psalm 89, verse 1: I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations from my, with my mouth. For I will declare, faithful love is built up forever. You establish your faithfulness in the heavens. Now look at verse 3. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So here this psalm is talking about the Davidic covenant. And, and here in Psalm 89, it's talking about the, the promises that God has made that we just looked at in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 5, Lord, the heavens praise your wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the Holy One. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God is greatly feared in the counsel of the Holy Ones, more awe-inspiring than all who surround Him. Lord of armies, who is strong like You, Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds You. You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, You steal them. You crush Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered Your enemies with a powerful arm. The heavens are Yours. The earth is also Yours. The world and everything in it, You founded them. He talks about north and south and goes on and on. Go down to verse 19, just for the sake of time. 
You once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones and said, I have granted help to a warrior. I have exalted one chosen for my people. Verse 20, I have found David my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. Now look at this, verse 21. My hand will always be with him and my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not oppress him. The wicked will not afflict him. I will crush his foes before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and love will be with him and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will extend his power to the sea and his right hand to the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. I will always preserve my faithful love for him. Now look at this. And my covenant with him will endure. And he specifies, I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. If his sons abandon my instruction and, and they do not live by my ordinance, if they dishonor my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will call their rebellion into account with the rod, their iniquity with blows. But look at verse 33. But I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or change my lip, change what my lips have said. Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will continue forever his throne like the sun before me like the moon established forever a faithful witness in the sky God has said he would establish it and it would last forever Anybody see a problem with that? Well, the problem is, is no one has sat on David's throne since Zedekiah was king, who was a legitimate heir to the throne of David. No one has sat there. When Herod's and all the Herod's came and they sat there, they were usurpers of the throne. They did not belong there. Where is it today? Does forever not mean forever? Well, liberal theologians would say, see, you can't trust the Bible. Because this hasn't been fulfilled. And we as Bible-believing Christians would say, it hasn't been fulfilled. And the optimum word is, yet. Yet. You know what's interesting? And what's interesting is this. Look look a little bit further. Look a little bit further. Because you're seeing all this. You see the end of verse 37 in my Bible is the word Selah. That means stop, think, meditate on this. Let all of that soak in. And when the psalmist did that, he had some questions. 
He gives some background, verse 38, but you have spurned and rejected him. You've become enraged with your anointed. You've repudiated the covenant with your servant. You've completely dishonored his crown. You've broken down all his walls. You've reduced his fortified cities to ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become an object of... What in the world is that about? David's throne that was established is now... Well, it's in disrepair. It has been obliterated. The, the Assyrians, the Babylonians have come in and destroyed Jerusalem and torn down the throng. How, how do I know the, the timeline? Well, look at the very beginning. Psalm 89. The title in my Bible is Perplexity About God's Promises. And notice what it says. It says, A Maskell, which is a musical teaching psalm. That's what Maskell means. It's a musical teaching psalm of not David. David didn't write this song. Of Ethan who? The Ezraite. Now, I doubt very seriously if you have ever in your life met an Ezraite. What is an Ezraite? An Ezraite would have been a disciple of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries when Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people were carried away in the Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah comes back and sees all Jerusalem is in ruins. He begins to build a wall to try to refortify the city. And Ezra is the prophet that joins Nehemiah when God sends revival in the rebuilding of that. And this disciple is looking at all that's taking place. They started building and stopped building. They left it in disarray for a long time. And this disciple, uh, Ethan, from from Ezra is saying, God, these are your promises, and this is what you said. But now let's look at reality and see what's happening. So how do we how do we reconcile that? How do we how do we cling to what the Bible says and believe it's true? And how do we see from 586 when when the Babylonians took Zedekiah, they killed both his sons, ruthlessly murdered them in front of their father, Zedekiah, and then kept him alive, but plucked out his eyes so that he would be blind forever. So the last thing that he would have visually seen is the ruthless murder of his sons. From then until now, the throne has been vacant or non-existent. What's the answer? And how do we as Bible-believing Christians explain, know for ourselves, and believe and have hope in the future? We'll talk about that next week. Okay? We've got to stop, and this is as good a place to stop uh, as any. And so now we have God's promises. This covenant is established. But now the throne is in disarray, and now it seems as though God has spurned His. I promise you, beloved, He hasn't. He hasn't. And when we come back next week, we will pick up and we'll answer. And I promise you, based on the authority of God's Word, you will see and know and have hope and believe. And it will make sense. We have to stop here. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. and. God, I'm thankful for a group of people to pastor who love you, who love your word. And Father, we can we can just let things rest from week to week. 
Lord, many, no doubt, here in this place will will go home and and reread these passages and study Your Word and look forward into the the New Testament and and see how You're going to bring all these things together. And Father, even as we study it in the coming weeks, we will be amazed and marvel at at who You are and, and what You are doing. And Lord, even as it relates to the Davidic covenant promises, what You will do in the future. I am thankful that I pastor a church and believe and have a people who believe that Your Word is true. And though they may not understand all of it, none of us do. We believe it and we cling to it and we study it and we rely on You to give us the interpretation, the meaning, so that we may apply it to our lives. Continue to build confidence in us, Lord, in Your Word. Raise us up as a generation of people who love You and love the study of Your Word. And Lord, we look forward to when the King of kings and the Lord of lords will indeed sit again on David's throne and reign and rule forever. It's in this matchless name, the name of Jesus, we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.